Welcome to Women of the Wild, where education and opportunities are key, and friendships are made to last a lifetime. You think we got him? You think we got him? We got him. All right, Skylar, what do we got here? We have a nice looking rip off. Welcome back to season two women of the wild podcast. We would like to first start off by thanking our title sponsors for the 2024 year. Atlantic Coral Enterprise, one of the largest import dealers in the world with excellent quality for hides, skulls, shells, and amazing gifts for friends and family or even your household. You can find them at AtlanticCoralEnterprise.com. RM Custom Calls, multiple world championships from Main Street to Live Duck. American-made, veteran-owned, when you want to win on the stage or in the blind, we have you covered. Small shop, big sound. You can find them at rmcustomcall.com or on Instagram. We also have Rhino Land Safaris, providing exceptional quality with unmatched hospitality and cuisine, offering African safaris, a destination hunt for the avid rifle or bow hunter with some of the best trophy management South Africa has to offer. You can find them at rhinoland.co.za or on Facebook, Instagram. Hey everyone, Andy Lehman here from ACC Crappie Sticks. Just want to let you know about our crappie baits and jig heads. We have a wide selection of the hottest colors and big eye crappie jig heads in the most popular colors and sizes. Check them all out at acccrappiesticks.com. Thank you. And now for today's episode, we hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Women of the Wild podcast. This is your host, Felicia Marie, for this episode, and we are here today with Sarah Honadel. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm good, Felicia. How are you? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you taking time out of your hunting season to talk with us, and I would love to just start this podcast and jump right into Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Sarah. I live here in Southeast Idaho, but I'm originally from Kentucky. I've been hunting about 15 years, did not grow up in a hunting lifestyle, did not grow up outdoors, actually grew up in very inner city neighborhood. So didn't really have too much exposure to the outdoors when I was growing up. We did go camping occasionally, but we did not hunt. My stepdad hunted some, but not something that we were really exposed to. So when I met my partner in 2009, he had been pretty much a lifelong hunter. And that fall season, he was pretty much gone the entire fall, which was kind of frustrating, but I understood. The next summer, he bought me a rifle for my birthday and taught me how to shoot it because I'd never shot a gun before. And that fall, I killed my first deer. And that's kind of 
from there, I kind of fell in love with it. Just everything involved with hunting. We ended up buying a farm in Kentucky just because there's, it's pretty limited as far as public hunting goes there. And, you know, we just wanted a place to hunt and after a couple of years, I started archery hunting and that, you know, really enjoyed that and really enjoyed the challenge of it. And a few years later, we moved to here to Idaho and I've taken elk and deer and mountain lion and bear and antelope and have been exposed to a lot more out here than I ever was in Kentucky. But it's just, you know, that's kind of how I started and, and where I am now. I It's awesome to see I, for our listeners who are listening in, who don't follow you, highly suggest it because you do so much. There's not like one thing. You're kind of that jack of all trades that, you know, looking at your social media, like you said, you've done mountain lion and elk and you've done all these things and you're a waterfowl hunter. So you, you kind of encompass like an outdoors woman as a whole and you, it's awesome to see how diverse you are in the outdoors. It's, it's funny to me that it starts off a lot of women. It seems to be that they like start off as like, it's not hunting at all. And then like, boom, we hit like our late teens, early twenties. And we get mm -hmm. like the slightest little introduction to the outdoors and we like immerse ourselves. Yeah, I was actually 29. So I was I was one of those later in life people, I guess, compared to a lot of people that I that start hunting, because I, I see so many women out there that are in their teens and early 20s that are, you know, getting into it. And I feel like when I got into it, I was so much older than everything else I was seeing. And I think that's important because not everyone has been exposed their entire life to that. Like I said, I didn't grow up around hunting. I didn't, we had guns in our house, but it wasn't something that like we ever went out and shot guns with my stepdad or anything. So I think it's really neat to, to kind of be the type of person that got into it later in life after kind of my life had already started. <laughs> I mean, as an adult, my life had already, you know, been going for a long time. Um, and then I had this major change from city life to country life to hunting. And it was kind of weird for a lot of people I knew that were like, what, you shot a deer, <laughs> you know, and people kind of took that kind of weird because I didn't grow up like that. And it's not the person they knew, um, but it just became this huge part of my life that now I can't imagine not having it in my life. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I, I think most of our listeners will be able to relate to that. And I think that's a, a fantastic point to bring up, though, is the fact that it really doesn't matter your age of when you want to get started in it. And if you don't know if you like it, like try it because you mm -hmm. could find this passion that you didn't know you had. Would you mind diving into what it was about that very first deer hunt that like hooked you in? And what was it that happened in that that it resided within you to be like, yes, this is what I want to do. It was, it was rifle season in Kentucky. It, I can't remember if it was opening day or not, but we had a friend who had a farm and he was like, oh, you know, bring Sarah down and she can, you know, we got plenty of deer, you know, she can shoot whatever she wants. And we were sitting down by a little Creek bed and could hear some movement behind us. And it was two, what looked like two does. They were kind of walking behind us and stood up and got turned around and I saw one and I shot it. It fell right there. The other one ran off and then came back. And I was like, I had this range of emotions that was like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Like, this is crazy. Like it, it was just this huge adrenaline rush. And then it was almost like this like wave of sadness, like, oh my gosh, I've just killed an animal. Like I've taken this thing's life, which was really hard for me at first. And then as soon as like, within a few seconds, it's just like, okay, reason came over me. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't just come out here and like shoot this animal for no reason. Like we're going to eat this animal. So it was like all of these different emotions. 
And I still feel like I go through those same emotions every time I, I take an animal's life. It's it's not something that I take lightly because it is important. It is, you know, some it's something's baby or something's mom or dad or whatever, you know, and I think about those feelings. And I think most people don't think hunters think that way. But I think most of us do think that way. So it is a very emotional experience with a lot of different positive and negative emotions. But then after that, it was just like that thrill of it. But then in the excitement, all of it just combined together and just accomplishing something different and something that I'd never thought I could do or would do. It just, once that happened, I got more involved in the hunting, like in the preparation side of it, in doing food plots and, you know, managing our property. And it just became something that I had some ownership over. And I think that is a really important aspect of hunting because it's not all about just going out and shooting an animal it's about all of these other things that are involved with what it takes to get that animal because there's so much work and effort to get one animal and you may not even get anything. Um, but I think that challenge is what kind of keeps me going and just being able to accomplish something that I've not done before. You know, I'm not a real competitive person when it comes to like sports, like I've never played, you know, sports or anything like that. Um, but I'm competitive against myself. I want to do better and I want to achieve my goals. When I think about social media, I don't try to look at other people and be like, oh man, they're like killing it out there. I wish I could do that. Like I have my goals for myself and that's what keeps me going is accomplishing something different for myself. Like, have I done this or, you know, how do I get to this next level for me? Um, so. Yeah. I think that's a great point as well. I mean, we have, we have so many people out there that do have that competitive state within them of like, or sometimes it might be, you know, that jealousy or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And for, especially for women, when you see another woman out there, you know, conquering the outdoors, it should never be a, a jealous kind of a standpoint from it. It should be, I'm so proud of her. I'm so excited. I know like we've had some girls on the page who have posted harvest this year and I'm sitting back and I'm like, I see the post or whatever, or I get the text message or the phone call. And I'm like through the roof, excited for them. The greatest point that you just stood out is one of my, my advocate sayings of like, I'm never competing with anyone else. I'm competing with who I was yesterday. Yeah, and that exactly. is such, such an important mindset with how much harassment outdoors men and women get on social media, like in day-to-day -day life especially women, uh, we seem to get put down quite a bit in the outdoors. And I think being each other's cheerleaders and having each other's back and like that quote of, you know, I'm not here to put out anyone's fire. I'm here to glow brighter with you is so important on so many different levels that there doesn't have to be that competition. And once you hit that mindset, like that you're in, that you're talking about, it becomes a whole nother, another level of an outdoorsman. Yeah. Outdoors woman, like it's great. And I just like, I feel like, you know, social media, I, it has so many great things about it. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends that I've met on social media, but I feel like it can kind of put us in a, a different mindset about what we're doing and, and almost make us feel bad for, you know, doing this over that or taking this animal over that animal. And I see it all the time, you know, on different, I, so I manage the Huntress View um, Instagram page and Facebook pages. And I, we see a lot of comments there and a lot of people from women and men, like, oh, why did somebody shoot that deer and that sort of thing? And it's just really frustrating to me because it's, 
it's something that it's a personal decision for everyone. It's not something that I should ever question why someone else took whatever animal they took. And I would never do that because I don't want somebody to question me. And I think that piece of social media is the negative side. But I think as a hunter, we need to have our own mindset. And like you were just saying, not comparing ourselves to other people, like do it for ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we can use with social media to empower us and gain, you know, knowledge and insights, but then don't put other people down because it's something you wouldn't do or something you wouldn't shoot. I think that's the most frustrating thing to me, especially when it comes from women bashing other women. Absolutely. It is so hard to read some of those comments. And I know most hunters have been on that receiving end of it. I've received it from many animals, especially with like being over in Africa with the zebra, the monkeys. It's a huge thing that there's enough people that aren't in the hunting community that tear you down, but it almost hits a little bit different and a little bit harder when it is people within the hunting community that do it. It's like, wait wait a minute, we should be out here having each other's backs. We don't need to tear ourselves apart from the inside. Yeah. I, um, a couple of years, I guess five years ago, I shot a mountain lion and I did not know if I wanted to put it on social media because I knew as soon as I did the backlash that would come from that. And eventually, you know, I decided this is my hunt that I am super proud of something I never thought I would accomplish. So, and I put it out there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, I took a beating for it, man. It was, it was rough. And again, it was a lot of hunters that are coming back saying, wow, you shouldn't have done that. You're not helping the deer by killing that lion, or you're not doing anything with it. You know, it's, it's just a trophy animal. And, and it's actually like, that's not true. There's so many reasons to take them. Like they're not endangered here. They're not, um, you know, on any type of endangered species list or protected or anything like they are predators here that need to be managed where a lot of people that don't live here wouldn't understand that and don't understand that that just because something is a different regulation where you are doesn't mean it's the same everywhere else and that was the biggest thing is well you know aren't mountain lions protected how could you shoot that and it was just like, wow, you don't know about where I am. But a lot of it came from other hunters and it was very frustrating. Yeah, it's very off-putting. And like you said, people don't know someone else's area and it's it can be extremely frustrating to see that from within. But the biggest thing is every every creature out there at any limitation needs some sort of management. Yes. So if it's if if it's being hunted legally and lawfully, it is being hunted for a reason. Like every state has its regulations for a reason. They, you know, they're monitoring those populations, the disease control, predator control, like all of those things are put into place for a reason. And I think that's the part that like, for me, it it drives me crazy because I'm like, wait, if it wasn't okay, why would there be a hunting license for it? If it was, you know, something where populations were lower, they, these states manage all of that so well that there wouldn't, you know, if, if we were in any type of detriment with a population, there wouldn't be a license available for it. Absolutely. So, and like where we are, we don't have doe hunts. Like for our deer population, we don't have any doe hunts because our population has suffered so bad over so many different like harsh winters that I think maybe three years ago, all of our doe hunts in our area stopped. So that is like, that to me is proof that our fish and wildlife is doing what they're supposed to be doing 
at some level to make those decisions. And, and like you said, if, if the hunt wasn't legal, there wouldn't be tags for it. There wouldn't be a license for it. It wouldn't be allowed. Um, you know, so if you're seeing someone out hunting or posting a picture of something that they've hunted, assume, I, I normally assume that it's legal or they wouldn't be putting it on social media, first of all. But, you know, you don't know what is happening in their area and their region. So to just make these quick, like, judgments about somebody based on one picture or one animal they've hunted is just really harsh. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's funny to me that we're, like, as a hunting community, we're doing that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. We get... So like most of my backlash luckily has been from the outside. I call it the greenies is because mm-hmm. it's a lot of, a lot of the anti hunters that I get a lot of it from, but you know, managing the women of the wild page, we, we don't tolerate any type of negative comments like that. So occasionally we do see them, but usually I see it on other people's pages and it like, when I see it, it's like the biggest thing. I have a story about a, a squirrel. I had a, a woman a few years ago on Instagram when I first started my Instagram ac- account that I had posted a couple of squirrels and I got a lot of backlash from a couple of anti-hunters about why we shouldn't hunt squirrels where we can hunt deer and turkeys. And I was like, okay, okay, wait a minute. Let's take a step back there because you're saying that it's okay for me to hunt deer. It's okay for me to hunt turkeys, but it's not okay to hunt a squirrel because they're these fuzzy, cute creatures. We well, are wrong because of this. And I provided education of like disease management of Mm -hmm. just flat out population management, starving out other things or the detriment can have on the environment, crops, things like that, getting, you know, once they overpopulate, getting into your homes, like those are all true concerns. And it's not like we're out there taking a hundred squirrels, like it was five squirrels. And I just provided that education back. And I actually got a message in return of like, can we talk about this privately? And I was like, absolutely. I'd prefer that instead of just blasting it all over social media. And this girl started messaging me. And after like a couple of weeks of, you know, back and forth, because you'd like answer today and then tomorrow she'd respond back. And after a couple of weeks, it was like, I know this sounds crazy, but I kind of want to do it. I'm like, yes. And being able to, I always say like, don't ever respond with like a harsh or brash response. Take a minute collect yourself and respond with education because it might just be a little bit of like ignorance Mm -hmm. of like, I don't know, but if you provide it and you come back and you're nice about it and you're like, well, this is why it happened. People might are nine times out of 10, they're going to be more likely to hear your side opposed to just coming back as like a brash response of like, no, Karen, you're wrong. And like, it's more like, well, this is why I do it. And this, you know, this is what I use that animal for. Cause that was another response of like, do you eat it? It's a rat. And I'm like, actually squirrels is one of my, one of my family favorites uh, here in my house. My kids love my squirrel dumplings. So like he- hearing that, that it's actually being utilized that I tan all of the hides, nothing mm-hmm. goes to waste. I even reuse the bones and things like that. So to hear that it's not an animal that's just being taken and wasted. And that kind of circles back to what you had said about taking an animal's life and having those emotions. I think that's a a really great topic to bring up because I think as women, we have that, that nurturing emotion that a lot of women and men, but as a hunter, people don't realize they think that we're hunters and we're just out there to like kill something. Well, they're wrong. We appreciate those animals and we actually, we want those populations to thrive at the end of the day. That's what keeps our licenses going. You know, and I said, doe hunt. That's, that's most of what, 
when, when I have the negative type comments is trying to respond back with that educational portion of it, because it's, it's easy to just delete a comment and move on. But in, in mo a lot of them that I do, you know, if they're like vulgar or, you know, just really harsh, then I'll just delete and move on. But if it's somebody that seems like, or maybe they're just asking a question or just have a comment, like my first thought is educate this person. Cause like you said, some people aren't really out there, you know, to bash somebody, they're just curious and they come across the picture the way social media works is it just shows up for them. You know, they're not actually seeking it, um, which I think most of us think that people are out here seeking our pictures to bash us. But I think a lot of times it's just the way social media works and it just gets put into their feed for whatever reason. And people will be curious. And my first line of defense is education. You know, if if somebody's going to make a comment about like this being an endangered animal or, you know, why would you shoot that type of animal or you shouldn't shoot that? Like it's education on why it's important to manage this population specifically, what it means. Um, and like you were saying, like there, there are negative impacts of all of these different animals if they're not managed. So having that education and then also letting them know that there's organizations like, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Wild Turkey Federation, Mule Deer Foundation, all of those things that were started by hunters because we actually do care about animals. And that was our way of finding a way to help manage these and putting regulations in place so that we can have these populations. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them without what, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, there wouldn't be elk in a lot of places. Like, you know, they were overhunted before and that organization and the funds that hunters provide have put them back into places they should have been because there was no, you know, long-term thought about, oh, well, if we kill all these animals, we're not going to have any. It just kind of happened. And then somebody stepped in and said, oh, wait, if we keep doing this, we're not going to have anything, you know? And once you start educating people, I think a lot of people are more willing to learn than we think they are. You know, I think they don't, they've never been exposed to anything like that. So they just jump to this conclusion. And by giving them a little bit of education, it goes a long way. And then it kind of helps them maybe change their mind. And even if they don't ever become a hunter, in, in my mind, I feel like it's, it's easier to change a non-hunting person into an anti-hunter than a pro-hunting, you know, supporter. And if we can do whatever we need to do to have people support us, even if they don't ever hunt, education is the way to do that. I mean, I have a lot of friends, like I said, I, I didn't hunt before and I had a lot of friends that obviously didn't hunt either. But when I started hunting, a lot of them questioned, well, why are you doing this? Are you eating it? Does it taste good? And then they were more interested in learning about it. And even though none of them have ever hunted and don't really have any desire to hunt, they know a lot more about it. So when things come up to vote, I'm like, okay, this impacts me in this way. You know, you know, there's different measures on ballots about protecting animals and that sort of thing. They're more likely to vote pro hunting than anti hunting. And I think that is a huge piece of, you know, important information that we need to keep putting out there. Absolutely. I think that education is the key in all of that. And like you said, in an, somebody that's maybe like an anti-hunter, it's easier to convert them to understanding the thought process and just respecting the fact that that like, it doesn't have to be a push. Like I don't want to hunt and that's okay. Like across the board, that is okay if you don't want to do it, but respect that someone else does and respect that those hunters 
are doing their efforts to conserve everything, every population of every animal, like that is us as a hunter, as a whole, all hunters have that thought process in their head. They want those populations to be managed and carried on. And it's really odd to me that people are so quick to pass judgment and like demand that their thought process is the way everyone else should think. It's just learning the respect and having the knowledge of this is why it's done this way. This is how it's used. Respect that that's my value and I'm respecting yours. At Absolutely. the end of the day, that's how we should all carry on. Yes, a hundred percent agree. <laughs> Well, Sarah, we are going to cut to a short commercial break and we're going to hear from our 2024 sponsors and we will be right back. We will now be taking a short break to hear from our mid-segment sponsors. Share your love of the outdoors with your little ones through the exciting adventures in Dr. Josh Farr's children's books. As an avid sportsman, Dr. Josh Farr has taken his passion for the outdoors and uses his vivid storytelling to teach valuable lessons and appreciation of the world. Learn the alphabet through the ABCs of hunting. Find joy in exploring the outdoors with Let's Go Out and Play and more. You and your child will love learning about nature with Dr. Josh Farr. See all of his books now at drjoshfarr.com. That's D-R-J-O-S-H-F-A-R-R.com. Weeby Knives, a brand of skinning, fleshing, and butchering knives perfect for the hunters, trappers, and fishermen with a unique high-quality knife for animals of all shapes and sizes. You can find them and more information at WeebyKnives.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stonehouse Digital Consulting, elevate your small business with Stonehouse's expert marketing solutions. Ignite your online presence and thrive with a tailored strategy to drive your growth. You can find them and more information at stonehousedigitalconsulting.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Livingston County Pheasants Forever, Chapter 465, with a mission to conserve pheasant, quail, and other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation. You can contribute by joining the meetings on the first Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. at the Howell American Legion Hall on the corner of M59 and Grand River. For more information and to get involved, you can find them at pf465.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Dreamcatcher Charters, a Michigan-based guide service for walleye, sturgeon, and duck hunting with a passion that drives their success, sharing the phenomenal Michigan waterways with everyone. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram. Feather Moon Outdoors, offering calls made from select materials. Every pot is fine-tuned in the house using the highest quality materials available. Also offering diaphragm, slate, glass, grunt calls, and more. For more information, you can find them at feathermooneoutdoors.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stay tuned, more podcasts to come. So welcome back from our listening into our sponsors. Uh, we're super appreciative of all of our sponsors for the 2024 year. And we're going to jump back in with Sarah and we're going to dive into, we just spoke about, you know, your upbringing in the outdoors. We talked a little bit about like social media and, and how it all works for hunters in the outdoors of just supporting each other. And at this point, I'd kind of like to kind of flop the conversation back over to you about a really great experience you've had in the outdoors, you know, your mountain lion hunt or anything like that. I know we heard about your first deer hunt, but maybe some of these extravagant hunts of like elk hunting, that's something that a lot of people would love to do and haven't done yet. Um, sure. So if you want to talk about that or your mountain lion hunt or anything else, waterfowl, we just, I would love for you to showcase what you are in your, your embodiment in the outdoors. 
Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, we started our, I started elk hunting, um, probably in 2010, maybe was my first trip out to Idaho. Um, and I just kind of tagged along with John. I had, I mean, I was just still new at hunting. Um, so I just kind of tagged along. It was very rough, um, coming from Kentucky to Idaho to hunt. Um, these mountains are no joke. Um, and then the following year I ended up getting an archery tag and I did not fill my tag at that time. And it actually took me six years to get my first archery elk. Um, and when it happened, it was probably one of my most exciting moments because I know I put so much effort in it year after year after year. And my first archery elk was just, he was a spike. He was with a, a bunch of cows and we started calling, he was about maybe like 500 yards away. And we had one of those um, like flat Montana decoys uh, of a cow elk. And we just kind of stuck that in the bush and John started cow calling. And all of a sudden this spike just ran down this mountain and up to us and was 25 yards away. And John's like, draw, draw, draw. And so I'm drawing and like, I can't even see this elk now. I don't even know where he went. And then all of a sudden he popped up right in front of me and I shot. And it was the biggest adrenaline rush I think I've ever had. Um, John took this picture of me like right after the shot. And the smile on my face was just probably the biggest grin that I've ever had. Um, cause it was just something that I had worked so hard for. I mean, literally hiking hundreds of miles year after year. I mean, we would, I would have my Fitbit on when we would come out here and get back and be like 120 miles this week. And it's like, I've never walked this much in my life. I mean, just dead tired and just wore out, but keep going. And when that happened, it was so exciting, um, you know, and since then I've still not killed another elk with my bow. So I, I joke that it'll be another six years that every six years I'll be able to get one with my bow. Let's fingers crossed. That's not the case, but this was year four and I did not get one. Um, but that one was really fun and it is challenging. So for anyone that is interested in elk hunting, that's maybe from the East coast or, you know, the Eastern United States and wants to come to the Western United States to hunt, it is very difficult. It is not like what you see on TV. There is a lot of effort, a lot of walking. The air is thinner, so it's hard to breathe. And I think people don't even think about that, how the different terrain and even clothing makes a huge difference. I mean, like clothes that I wore in Kentucky and just sat in a deer stand or, you know, a tree stand or a ground blind or whatever do not work typically out here. You know, it's more about functional fabrics and you know, things to keep you cool or keep you warm, but not too warm because you don't want to sweat. And, you know, it's cold in the mornings and it's 90 degrees in the afternoon and you're hiking. And I think that's a lot of things that people don't really think about, but it's it's good to educate yourself on those types of hunts and all of the requirements and not just watch like YouTube videos and, you know, famous people on TV hunting because it's way different than that. But like my mountain lion hunt, that one it was, it's up there, probably the most difficult hunt I've ever done. We have a friend that has hounds and he called us one morning at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning was like, Hey, I've got found tracks. If you guys want to go shoot a lion and here I'm thinking, heck yeah, let's go here. Get my little Belvita cracker. He's on tracks. It'll be done in no time. So I ate a Belvita little breakfast cracker thing. Didn't take anything else with me first mistake, always take snacks. And we got home at about six o'clock that night after we had gone up and down probably five different mountains. We had been in a tr like our truck 
our ranger, our snowmobile, somebody else's razor. And it was like negative 10 degrees. And then you're hiking through thigh deep snow. And finally, I mean, I was at the point where I'm like, I'm done. Like, I don't even care anymore. This is, I, I can't even, I don't even know where this lion is, you know? And finally we heard the dogs barking and we were walking up a hill and I could hear the dogs coming back down the valley. And I just stopped and bent over to like catch my breath. Cause every step I took was like one step up, three steps back. Cause it's this thigh deep snow. Mm-hmm. And I just stood there for a second and trying to catch my breath and looked over And I saw this lion in the tree and I was like, holy crap, it's right there. (laughs) But I didn't want to shoot because I didn't know kind of at the angle we were like where our friends were that had the dogs. So I would, you know, we kind of yelled out to them and they were like, as long as the dogs have it, you know, it'll stay there. Just try to get down and back up to that tree. So that's what we did. And it was, it was very cool. You know, I got into a position where I could get a good shot and I shot, I I used my rifle and it fell out of the tree and that was it. And then, um, then we had the task of getting it back like a mile on foot to the razors and the snowmobile and then down the mountain. And it was, it was really neat though. Like it's just, it was so difficult just because of the conditions and I've never hunted in conditions like that, which made it all the more challenging and all the more rewarding to accomplish that. But as soon as we got home for somehow I had like made some chicken noodle soup in the crock pot the day before and had just like turned the crock pot on that morning before we left. Thankfully, because it really, we were really gone for like 14 hours fooling with this, um, you know, and got home. And I think we got this, we got this lion skinned out, ate some soup, showered in bed. Like it was in bed by like seven o'clock, you know, but we did eat the mountain lion. That's probably the biggest question we get is, what did you do with it? You know, cause again, it's one of those animals that people think you're just trophy hunting for a hide or whatever, but we actually did eat it. And that's, like I said, the biggest question people ask is what does it taste like? And cause it's kind of weird that it's a cat and it's still like mentally was weird for me, but it did just taste like pork. Like the meat was very pink, like pork is. Um, and so we would just like either put it in the crock pot and make barbecue with it or, you know, sear it and on the, in a skillet and make little like chops with it. And it was actually really good good. So I would definitely shoot another one and eat it. But that's one of the hunt, like that's a hunt that I never imagined I would do. I I was born in August. I'm a Leo. So I kind of have this like attachment to lions and cats. So it was kind of weird for me. Like it was something that I was never planning to do. But when the opportunity arose, I took it and it turned out to be probably one of my most memorable hunts just because of what I had to do to get it and what I feel like I accomplished because it's not, I mean, it was very out of my comfort zone to be in those type of conditions. So it was, it, you know, it, it made for a really good hunt and, you know, I'm really proud of myself for achieving it. Well, and I was going to ask you that, but you already brought it up was eating it. Cause I know that's a big misconception for a lot of the big cats is like, <laughs> well, it's just a trophy. What do you, you know, what are you going to do with it? And it's like, no, you can actually eat these things. And it's kind of difficult to explain it sometimes to people because they want like a comparison, but not always can you compare it to something. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you actually compared it because anyone that I've ever talked to that's eat mountain lion is like a big bucket list hunt for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not something I've been able to do yet, but it's like, it's definitely up there. It's like one of the ones that I would love to do. And it's, it's because of the challenge. I don't want it to be easy. I don't like anything that I hunt to be easy. A lot of times if it is, I don't pull the trigger, but 
anyone that I've ever spoken to that tries to describe the taste of like mountain lion hasn't been able to pinpoint it to anything. They're like, I don't know, it tastes like a mountain lion. So yeah, to me, I'm it was like pork. We actually took it, some of the, the back straps off of it and put them on a smoker at our friend. We took it to Kentucky with us when we went back for Christmas. Our friend put it on the smoker and then we took the rest of it to my mom's house for Christmas dinner. So of course she had traditional Christmas dinner. Uh, and then we have this, you know, container over here with this mountain lion backstrap in it. And everybody's like, oh, what's that? And I mean, it looks like a pork roast. It looks like a long, skinny pork roast, like a pork loin. And I'm like, it's mountain lion and nobody would believe us. And I'm like, okay, what you're asking, I'm telling you. So, you know, that's what it is. Oh, no, it's not. It's just a pork roast. And I'm like, okay, but it's a mountain lion. And everyone in my family who, again, no one hunts, no one really eats wild game. Um, everybody really enjoyed it. There was one lady that I think she didn't ask what it was and just assumed it was pork and then found out it was a mountain lion. She kind of freaked out, um, but everybody else was really open to it. But yeah, to me, it was just like pork. And and I think a lot of it has to do with how you cook it. I mean, that's the only way I've ever had it cooked. It was either like on the smoker or like seared and then put in the crock pot with barbecue sauce or more like just, you know, pulled pork. Um, so to me, that was the the way to kind of you know, eat it. And it was just like pork to me. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm excited to experience something like that one day of like ex those types of meats. I think it's really awesome to be able to, like you said, everybody was willing, even though they're not hunters that they were mm -hmm. willing to try it. That's a big misconception people have, which was a, a great point that you brought up was it really depends on how it's prepared too. Like you can, mm -hmm. wild game has so many different ways to prepare it that like I've I'm here in Michigan and I've heard a lot of people you know talk about like the ducks of how like certain ones don't taste good I actually recently had a friend tell me a story of how their dad won't eat ducks because he won't even like wouldn't even duck hunt anymore because he didn't like the taste of a mallard and I was like what <laughs> what do you mean um maybe I need to cook him a duck because yeah you know that's how that's one way that I think is a good way to introduce people to hunting is through the food part of it because we all have to eat you know and we do all of our processing ourselves so we take very good care of our meat because how you handle it impacts how it is going to taste. Um, so we are very particular and we do it all ourselves. Um, we have all of our own processing equipment and we pretty much only eat wild game. So if someone comes to our house, that's what they're going to eat or they're not going to eat, or they have to bring their own food or whatever. But I think that's a great way to introduce people. Cause I think most people assume that it has this like funky flavor because they hear it oh well it's gamey and I'm like well have you ever even tried deer what do you mean it's gamey like what does that even mean you know <laughs> and the the lion was weird because most people would never even most people will never have the chance to eat mountain lion and I would think most people would never have the chance to eat bear meat either which we've killed a few bears and we've eaten all of that meat I think it's just you can take any of that wild game use it however you would use beef basically is, is how we, when people are like, Oh, well, I've got this deer meat. Somebody gave me this. What do I do with? I'm like, well, if it's a roast, make it a roast. Like, what would you do with that? If it was a piece of beef, people don't get that for some reason. But I think that the, the food side of it is such a good way to introduce people to hunting and the benefit of it versus like the killing trophy side of it. When I worked in an office, I mean, I would take leftovers for lunch and this girl walked into my office one day and she was like, oh, what are you eating? And I was like, elk roast. And she was like, man, that smells so good, but I would never eat that. And I'm like, why? 
And she's like, I would never eat elk. You know, I don't even know what that is. I'm like, well, just try it. So I get a little fork out of my drawer. I'm like, if you don't like it, just spit it in the trash, you know? And she ate it and was like, wow, that's really good. It tastes just like a beef roast. I'm like, exactly. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have any different flavor, but it's, people just have this like immediate, like shut down to it. Like, oh, it's wild game. It didn't come from the grocery store. It's not safe. It's not good or whatever. But with like ducks, we're, I'm still like the jury's out for me on ducks because I love to duck hunt because I like duck hunting with my dog. To me, that's the best part of it. But eating ducks is not something I'm a fan of. The only way we've found to actually eat them and make them edible is just you know, poking them a bunch of times with a knife or a fork, marinating, and then putting like bacon wrapping and grilling or broiling to make little poppers. We've tried so many different ways, you know, and different ducks, like out here in Idaho, we have a lot of different types of ducks. You know, we have mallards and gadwalls and mostly what we shoot is mallards, gadwalls, widgeon. And then later in the season, like now we get more mergansers and people have this like anti-merganser, like they will not eat mergansers. But we have eaten them if you marinate them and if you treat them, we usually just breast them, soak it in water, get all that blood out and then marinate it. And you can't tell, like, I feel like if we put a merganser breast next to like a mallard or whatever, somebody, nobody's going to be able to pick out like, oh, well, that one's definitely the merganser. Like it doesn't really have any flavor that's different if you take the proper precautions and, you know, cook it the right way. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people don't realize too, is their environment is going to depict a lot of their mm -hmm. flavor. Like for us here in Michigan, we have a lot of deer that eat a lot of corn, a lot of soy, mm -hmm. wheat. They taste different than the deer that I've taken in West Virginia, where they're eating with acorns. They have a, just a different taste to them. And I have heard that from a lot of people out West of like ducks aren't edible. And I'm like, well, first thing, step back and look at what they're eating. Mm -hmm. uh, like here, we don't eat mergansers. I actually, I cook them for dog food. So I mm -hmm. smoke them and then I make dog snacks out of mergansers, but it's because the mergansers are eating what they're eating and what their, their meat content is a little bit more like oily. It's very like fish mm -hmm. oil. So it's excellent for the dogs. I don't really care for it. And then like, we have a lot of diver ducks and puddle, or du puddle ducks. Like you're looking at those types of species of duck and they're it really just depends on what they're consuming. Like you said, mm -hmm. how they handle the meat. I actually saw a video today that like, I've never even thought of sharing that education, but Aaron with Unchartered posted a video this morning about tips from a guide of like making sure that you're flipping your duck on its back to make sure that it's not filling with blood because then it can add that like iron taste and make sure that you're keeping them cool. Like, I think that's a really great aspect, especially to come from a female guide of those types of tips, mm -hmm. because that that's something people aren't thinking about. They grab their duck and they throw it in the blind and it kind of lays where it lands. But being cautious and careful of like making sure that you're laying on the back so the blood doesn't pool and you're not putting all that blood into the meat. Just little things like that are huge tips to make something mm -hmm. taste better. But biggest thing is what they're consuming. Cause I've heard from a lot of people out West that like, they just don't eat ducks. And I'm like, you're crazy. We eat so yeah, many we ducks. We eat all of yeah. ours. And I mean, we, like, I normally go solo with my dog just because my, my work schedule allows me to do that. And John's working. Um, so I'll go in the mornings and even if we just shoot a couple of ducks, it's still fun, but we eat them all. I mean, we put them in the, I'll, like I said, I soak them usually in water for a couple of days, get some of the blood out and then freeze them. But we eat all of them. Cause I'm the type of person, like, I don't 
like to just kill an animal for no reason. This is something, coyote hunting is something that I have a personal hang up with. Like I know that there is a need to coyote hunt and I, I understand the predator control aspect of it. And I have no issue with somebody else predator hunting and hunting coyotes. It is not something that I can do because I'm not going to eat that animal. And I, John and I went hunting, like coyote hunting with a friend one time. He shot this coyote and it was like the saddest moment for me because I think, because again, I have my dog, I love my dog. And it was very hard to see this dog get shot for no reason to, in my mind. Like, I know there's a reason. I know the reason behind coyote hunting. But for me, I just can't do it because I'm not going to eat that animal. And that was the primary reason why we ate the mountain lion. Because I was like, I don't want to just shoot this animal for nothing, for its fur. Like, that's just not how I am. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I don't have a problem with other people and how they hunt, assuming it's legal. Um, you know, here, you're not required to take the meat from a mountain lion or a bear, but we take all of our bear meat and we eat that. But for me, I just, it like eating it is part of the experience and part of the hunt. And without that, to, to me personally, it just feels like it's, it's not the same. Like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. For sure. Now, is is it like the with a coyote? Is it something where it resembles too much like a dog, where you wouldn't try it? Because I know that like we've watched meat eater and things like that, where they've cooked coyotes and eaten them. Is it something that is just that mental block for you, where you wouldn't eat it, or is it like are they not something that you guys consume in your area? I I've never known anybody to consume one, and I think it's and and I don't honestly even know why it's different for me than like a mountain lion because a mountain lion is eating the same thing that a coyote is eating you know, or a lot of times bears. Exactly. You know, so it's like, I don't even know what my hangup is, but I think that it's just traditionally not eaten and mm -hmm. we've never eaten it. And I don't know anyone that would eat it. And so just to leave the the carcass laying there and just take its fur or, you know, I, I just feel weird about that. It just feels so unnecessary to me. Uh, but like right. I said, you know, other people do what you do. That's, you know, you do you. And I would not judge anybody because I, again, I know that I understand the, the, the need for coyotes being managed. You know, our farm in Kentucky, we saw coyotes all the time and John would shoot them and that was fine. It was just never something that I did or wanted to do, you know, because we saw a lot of fawns. We saw a lot of our, you know, fawns get killed by coyotes and we had stuff on camera, you know, so I know there's an important management aspect of it. I don't know what my hang up is on it. I think it's because I've never tried it. I don't know if I would try it if, some, if I went to like somebody's house and they were like, here, I've got this coyote barbecue. Like, I don't know if I would try it. You know, I might take a taste of it, but I feel like I would have this like mental hang up about it um, being like, wow, that was really weird, you know, but it probably tastes fine. Right. Yeah. And I'm kind of on the opposite spectrum with it all because I have like this vendetta with coyotes. We had, this was back in 2013, but we had a couple of dogs. We had a, a chocolate lab and a, a pit bull Rottweiler mix. And our dog actually got attacked in broad daylight right after the school bus yeah. picked the kids up. And I mean, almost killed one of our dogs. Luckily, our other dog, the pit bull Rottweiler was with him and kind of came to his rescue. But he got attacked in broad daylight by the school bus stop in the morning by three coyotes and put him like, literally, we thought we were going to lose our dog over this. So then like after that, I, my biggest thing with it was like, what if that would have been one of my kids? 
Absolutely. Like what if one of my kids would have been in the black backyard on the playground and you know, they're in your backyard, they're in their safety. So I'm not saying they're unattended, but like if I went inside to do the dishes and the kids are playing on the, on the playground, would, would those three coyotes have chosen to take out my, my two-year-old at the time? Like, what would I have done? Like, what, what can I do to manage this? And I've never personally eaten coyote. Um, but I have seen it on different TV shows and things like that, or in cookbooks where they've, they've cooked them. And it's a predator meat. So I think that that's the biggest thing with it is acknowledging mm -hmm. that it is a predator meat. It's not like it's going to be venison or anything like that, but I would put it, I would assume to put it in the same category as something like bear mountain lion, something like that, because it's a predator eater consuming those same things. Right. Um, but I actually manage a trap line here in Michigan for one of the local farmers and coyotes are only, they're only something I target near the cattle. And it's mm -hmm. for the agriculture purposes of those cattle. I do run trap lines for like the raccoons and things like that. And that's actually our, one of the big reasons we have the women of the wild cookbook is because we were getting so many responses from women of the, do you eat that? What does it taste like? I don't know that I could ever eat that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What if we did this cookbook and we could have women from all over the nation showcase their recipes of different ways that they cook this because if this is something that they're harvesting and cooking all the time, they're the experts in it, not mm -hmm. me who's never done it. So we had like last year in our cookbook, we had a girl that submitted a recipe for a groundhog and it, at, like, everybody's like, oh my God, I never even thought to eat one. Now I feel like next time I get a groundhog, that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to make this recipe. And it, it invites someone out there that has that mindset of, I have to consume it, which we should all have. We shouldn't be wasting meat. We should be consuming it. Um, that's a big rule in our house is if you kill it, you eat it with exception, like the trap lines and things like that. I don't have that rule. We have on occasion utilized things on the trap line, um, but we save like their furs, the bones, things like mm -hmm. that. But to me, if you're out hunting and we're targeting something, whether it's, you know, with archery, whether it's with firearm, if you're going to kill it, you're going to at least try to eat it. I think that that's really hard for some hunters. And I'm the same way. Like if I'm not going to utilize it, I'm not going to kill it. Or like, I've had this conversation several times this season because I haven't been out whitetail hunting yet. Well, it's because my freezers are full of hides and meat of different <laughs> animals and I don't need the meat. So there's no point for me to go out. I also haven't harvested a buck um, since my son was born and he's 14 this year. I just haven't felt the need. I've always shot does. We mm -hmm. have a very high population of them here in Michigan. We get 10 doe tags. So I always buy my combo tag for my archery firearm for a buck, but I've never utilized it. I am glad to eat tag soup on that to put a couple freezer queens in. Yes, absolutely. And like to me, like even when I've hunted out of state, I've, I've hunted out of state for whitetail and I always end up taking does and it's not for a lack of opportunity, but I just look at it as like, and I think Africa has tainted me a little bit because I have that mindset in my head that if it's not like the perfect trophy, of a deer, he can walk. I've passed on eight points. I've passed on six points. I've passed on big deer that were just young because it's the let them go, let them grow. That doe that's going to be coming up, you know, coming in is going to taste just as good, if not better. And that's what I've kind of stuck to. I've stuck to my guns of just doe management, but we also have the population to do that. We're in an area like where you're at, you don't have that option. Like you're going to, yeah. you're going to take bucks because that's what you're allowed. Where here, we're allowed those 10 does. And it's like, well, if we're allowed two bucks, but we're allowed 10 does, I'm going to fill a couple of these doe tags. And I actually do 
with my kids, I do earn a buck. So you're not allowed to shoot a buck in our house until you've taken a doe. Now I have, yeah, I have my limitations. Like they haven't shot a buck yet. So I'm okay that like in that, in that situation, if a good buck walks out, a trophy to them is a trophy to me. I don't care if it's a spike. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's a four point. Luckily I have two little boys who've been raised in the outdoors that are very like, nope, it's not it, that one walks, you know, they've, they've passed on some small bucks this year. And, um, it's, it's something to be proud of as a mother, but like that I've instilled that in them of this is why I passed on it. Doesn't mean you have to, but right. they have like, adapted that mindset of no, he's just a four point. I, I'd rather shoot the dough. And I think that's great, especially in, you know, population areas like what we have, we have to have more people setting those ground rules and teaching that to their kids. You know, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I miss about living in Kentucky is, you know, we had a huge doe population. And so the way where we were in our zone, you bought your license and you got a buck tag and a doe tag, but you could buy as many doe tags. It was unlimited. I could buy a hundred if I wanted to, it didn't matter. Um, like you could just buy them. You had to buy them in sets of two. So it was 15 bucks for $15 for two does. And then you could just buy as many as you wanted. So John and I, we would usually, you know, shoot between like six and eight deer every year, six and eight does every year to fill the freezer up. And we didn't shoot bucks every year. Like I got a really nice one on my first my first buck was a really nice one. And I think it kind of cursed me because I haven't been able to get anything decent since. Um, but that was fine because we would shoot does and they're usually better eating anyway, but that's what we use to fill our freezer and our property could sustain it. We could go out at any moment and see 30 does every night. And it was mm -hmm. like not even a, a problem. So it was like our property could handle us shooting that many does. So why shoot a little buck? But our rule on our property was, you know, you could come out and you should, could shoot a doe. That's fine. If you shoot a buck, you have to mount it. Like it has to be one that's a real trophy. And if it's a trophy enough to shoot it, it's trophy enough to mount it, you know, and that kept people from shooting our small bucks because they didn't want to spend six or $700 getting a shoulder mount on it when they, there's 15 does standing right there. So why would you shoot this one, you know, little two point or whatever, you know, when you have, all these doughs that are going to be better tasting anyway. So that was kind of our mindset on it. Um, you know, we let up a lot of people hunt on it, but that's the biggest thing that I miss because it is deer hunting out here in Idaho is very, very different, you know, and, and I miss being able to fill the freezer um, with that deer meat and very tasty deer meat. You know, we had a, we had food plots, so we had a lot of soybeans and there was a lot of cornfields and everything. So they had good food where out here, our mule deer tastes like sagebrush. So mm -hmm. we don't usually eat it just as like a steak or a roast. We make it into Italian sausage or chorizo or things like that to really cover the taste of the deer meat. It's, it's really different hunting out here. There's definitely pros and cons, but yeah, I miss being able to shoot as many does as we wanted, because that was, it was a good time being able to fill the freezer with that much meat and, you know, still have a good population of deer. Oh, absolutely. And I think like that was, I, I've talked about this previously on other podcasts, but, um, I, my taxidermist a few years ago, I used to have this really bad stigma with trophy hunting. And I was like, Nope, I'm a meat eater. I'm a meat hunter. I'm, you know, I, it's about the meat for me. Um, I'm not a trophy hunter. And one day my taxidermist, I was dropping, I think like birds or something off at the taxidermist. And he's like, which I got to ask you, like, what's your hang up on a trophy hunter? He's like, cause I hate to break it to you, but you, you're the epitome of a trophy hunter. And I was like, no, I'm not, you know, got defensive. And he's like, he's like, but you are and hear me. And I said, okay. 
and he tells me this the story of like I don't want to say story but he he gives me uh, some factual information of like here is what it means to be a trophy hunter and it just means you are more concerned with the management that you're not out there shooting the four points that you're putting the effort to make sure that you're shooting those 12 points or those old mature deer that you're not out there just taking something to take it he said when you say meat hunter I think poachers I think people who are just out there that it doesn't matter what it is I'm just there to kill it for the meat and I'm like it, it hit something inside of me where I've forever reverted and I've tried to do posts and things like that to break that bad stigma of that term of like trophy hunting because he's right. It puts more money back into our economy. It is better for our co- conservation. And you are, you're truly a trophy hunter when you start doing things like that in my perspective now, which I didn't have. But if that, if you're managing and you're taking the oldest, the most mature that's really the the definition of a trophy hunter is like doing your efforts for the conservation of those animals and to push past and that like let them go let them grow it's not a bad thing to be in that mindset and now i've i've gotten to the point where it's like whitetail don't do it for me the same way and i think it's because i've hunted so many exotics in in that where i'm like well if i'm not going to mount it there's not really a reason to shoot a buck I'd rather just shoot does. And like, for me, like trophy hunting is very different than that. Like I, I I hate the term trophy hunting because of that perception that is only about big deer and it's only about antlers. Um, because I feel like everybody's trophy is different. Everybody's property is different. Like a, a trophy on your property is different than a trophy on my property or my farm, you know, and I understand the management aspect of it. And I understand the, let it go, let it grow. Because if you don't, then you're never going to have big deer. Um, but there's just a, to me, a different mindset about trophy hunting, because I think trophy is different to every hunter. Like I actually, I write for DeerCast, which is their Drury Outdoors app. And I've recently posted an article about trophy hunting and how it's become this almost like negative term Mm -hmm. to so many people because it's, it's used against us. Like anti-hunters use trophy hunting against us um, because the, the media, I guess, or, you know, whomever has created this like negative ass, like negative, like perception, I guess, of hunting being this trophy hunting and I think if we can change the term from this negative perception of hunting only for trophies back to what is the trophy to the hunter, you know, mm-hmm. like the, to me, I do consider myself a meat hunter because I, I don't care about antlers. You know, I've shot some small bucks because that was my only option. The elk that I took was a spike and it was honestly the best eating elk that you could get besides a one-year-old cow, you know, but it's all about opportunities and, and what's available to you. And not everybody has the opportunity to hunt a trophy deer, like a, a you know, a 150 inch whitetail on some people's property is like, that's what they see. That's normal. But some people, 150 inch deer is like bigger than anything they've ever killed. Like my first buck was 149 and five eighths is what he measured. Um, John, who has been my partner, who's been hunting since he was like 12 or 13, grew up in Florida, has never killed a deer that big. 
like has never even had the opportunity, like growing up in Florida, he would never have the opportunity to shoot 150 inch whitetail. There's no way. So I think to me, like the term trophy hunting has become this such a negative thing that I think it's, you know, I don't like the term because it just has such a negative connotation to it um, that I think it's up to us to change it from this negative thing. Because I think so many people associate it with African hunting um, Mm -hmm. that people like, you know, in air quotes here, rich white people go to Africa to shoot all the trophy animals. And that's terrible to me. Like, I don't like that perception that people have because a trophy to me is very different than a trophy to you. And I don't like, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but it's just, yeah. it's a weird term to me. It's a weird phrase to me. Yeah. And that's actually why I brought that up because for a long time I had that bad stigma to it until he related in that, that terminology of like, this is why it's not, but I agree with you. A trophy is a trophy to whoever is harvesting that animal like and I like I said with my kids like I don't care if it's a four point I don't care if it's a spike Mm -hmm. a trophy to you is a trophy to me regardless whether it's my kids whether it's another woman another hunter I have and I agree with you on like I think a lot of people associate the term trophy hunting with Africa and as an avid supporter of African hunting I -hmm. wasn't I was not at all before I went And I went, I experienced it and I got to educate myself and it completely converted me. And I grew like such a passion towards exactly that of changing that bad stigma of these animals. It's you're not, well, yes, you're taking trophy quality animals. That meat is being utilized. It's Mm -hmm. the experience you're putting back into the economy. Like all of that meat is utilized, all of it. And it's feeding people that here in the United States, we don't have that full grasp because we're not in a third world country Right. that we, you know, we're donating that meat to villages, to people that don't have that option. We are protecting against poaching because if those people don't have that meat donated to them, they're going to go out and poach those animals. They have to eat. There's no grocery stores. Right. So you're doing this. Like it is, it's funny to me because I do get a lot of that and it, I laughed a little bit when you said the rich white girl thing, because that's actually one of the comments that I received was like, oh, you must be some rich white girl. And I'm like, really? I am like middle class, just like everyone else. Luckily, I'm blessed with the opportunity to go over there, but I just manage myself and my, my personal life to be able to go over there every year. It's because it's a passion, no different than, you know, somebody that- Going on vacation anywhere else. Exactly. So it's not like, it's not something that you have to be this rich person to go do. You just have to manage your money just like you would with any vacation. I mean, I spent, I spend about the same for me to go to Africa every year as I did to like when my family went to Aruba or, you know, for me to go on one of those like destination vacations, which is what you're doing when you're going over there. It's a destination vacation. You're just hunting in the process, but I can do it for about the same price as it would cost me to go somewhere tropical for a week. Right. Only that I get to do what I love doing. I get to contribute back to those villages and South Africa, the, the, the people over there have became like family to me. I've absorbed their culture. Like I absolutely love it. Starting to learn Afrikaans. I love it that much, but it's funny because I once was that person that had that bad stigma against trophy hunting. I didn't, I wasn't like, I never cared what somebody else did. I was never, oh, shame on them for shooting a giraffe. You know, that's, I've never been that person. 
um, even before I, I fell in love with Africa, I would still congratulate those people. It's still Mm -hmm. a trophy to them. Absolutely. Um, But it's just funny how, like we talked about previously in the podcast is education can change your perspective immensely. And it's, I think a lot of times something, someone is quick to jump to their perspective of like, this is why I wouldn't, or this is why it's wrong because they haven't experienced it for themselves that they, because you can educate yourself on it, but until you've done it yourself, you just don't know. But it is crazy to me that that term, it just so many people have that bad taste in their mouth with trophy hunting. When at the end of the day, a, a trophy is a trophy to whoever, whoever harvested that. And like you said, somebody might not have 150, 160 inch whitetail. And who am I to judge what they need in their freezer? I mean, what happens when, you know, somebody's only able to go out two or three times during that whitetail season, but they need that meat to feed their family. They're going to shoot whatever walks out. And that's, I'm, when I, I made that statement, I'm not dogging on that. I think that it's great. You're getting out there no matter how you do it, as long as it's legally, I'm all for it. Do it however you wish. In in my personal circumstances, I've been blessed to have the opportunity that my freezer's full. I don't have to take that animal unless I consider it a trophy and I'm going to mount it. Right. Not to say that that's the right thing for everyone. Yeah. I think it's just, it's just important to make sure that, you know, everybody knows that you don't have to live up to anyone else's expectations about hunting. Like if it's a trophy to you, take it. We, we had a comment the other day on one of the hunters view posts that a girl had shot a button buck and, you know, we just kind of, I, I reposted her picture with the quote from her post and this girl comes in and she's like, I just don't know why you would ever shoot a button buck. There's it's not got antlers obviously. And it doesn't have that much meat and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, wow, this is like, none of your, like none of your business. First of all, like, why are you concerned about it? It's not your property. It's not your state. Like it's actually not even your country. Cause she was in Canada. Like the girl that we posted was in Canada and this girl was in like Ohio or something. And so I responded back as Hunter's view with, you know, a really, you know, nice and appropriate response of, you know, we respect any, you know, any hunter that's, you know, out there doing it legally and ethically. And we're proud to, you know, support that and promote that blah, blah, blah. And then she comes back with, well, I'm not trying to be negative or bash anyone. I love spreading positivity. And so I come over from my personal account because I feel like I can have a, a different voice from my personal account versus the mm-hmm. Hunter's View brand, you know, and I'm like, you're telling me that you're, you know, you're posting that you're spreading positivity and you love supporting women, but you're posting this backhanded comment, bashing somebody because they're doing something different than you. Like it doesn't matter to you. It shouldn't matter to you what this person shot. It's not your property. It's not your farm. You manage your deer the way you want, but this might've been the only opportunity that this person had. They may have only gotten to go out one time. This might be their first deer. Like you don't know. So to come in and like judge somebody and like, tell them it's wrong for doing it. Like, that's not your place, you know? Absolutely. And I was, but she was like, oh, I love spreading positivity and supporting women, but yet you're making this backhanded comment bashing this girl. Like, don't do that. <laughs> no. And that is the big thing. I think that all of us as hunters or non-hunters that are, that could be listening to our podcast, um, I think that it's very important to sometimes take a step back that if you're not going to say something that is positive. Like it, it brings back the the saying from when I was little, we used to watch Bambi a lot in my household. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, Thumper's mom, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah, it's and easy if, to just keep scrolling. Uh, yes. 
I can't agree with that more. Like if, <laughs> if you have something that is not a congratulations, way to go. I'm proud of you. That person is, and that's why they posted it. Right. Leave it alone. Scroll past, unfollow them, unlike them, whatever it is. You do not, you can actually hide. You can click the little dots up in the corner and hide that post from ever seeing it again. Let them have their shine. Yeah. Let them be proud of it. And don't take that away from anyone. I know last year we saw a really negative comment towards a kiddo and it, it struck a nerve boy that I didn't know I had. <laughs> and it was somebody bashing a kid for not taking a large buck or there was a few of like shooting small does. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this kid's first deer and right. you are going to ruin this for him. How dare you? He's proud of it. His dad's proud of it. Like they put a lot of work into this and it was, it was an archery deer too. So it was a younger kid with an archery deer. And I'm like, to me, I'm like, way to go. You practice so hard for that. And it paid off. And oh. even if it didn't pay off and you're out there doing it, fantastic. Like you, like I always tell people, it does not have to be a trophy photo for us to showcase it. Like show us what you're doing in the outdoors, post a video, do, like whatever you're doing in the outdoors. If you're out there and you're doing it, we're proud of you and everyone should feel that way. Like don't, that's what don't. I loved what you just said about with your kids. Like they're not taking a buck unless they, until they take a doe. Like, I think that's great. Um, like I had seen another social media post the other day that was on like a whitetail hunting page. And it was like, I'm taking my son out hunting. Is it okay if I let him shoot a doe instead of a buck? And I'm like, why are you even asking this question? Like, of course, like let him shoot whatever he wants to shoot. It's his first deer. Like don't, don't force him to have this thinking that you can only shoot bucks. Like that is to me, like such a negative way to introduce somebody, like let them just get the feel for it. Like if, if something gets their blood boiling, gets their heart pumping and they're excited, it's a doe let them shoot it. If, as long as it's legal and you've got the correct license and tags, like don't put all of the emphasis on, you can only shoot big bucks. Like, absolutely. <laughs> I just don't get that. And why somebody would even ask that question. Um, and fortunately everybody in the comments was very agreeable to that. And, you know, was like, absolutely. Let him shoot whatever he wants. Like you don't have to focus on big bucks, like, you know, and just, I think it's, it's just become such, I think because we see it on social media all the time, like we want to be like other people we see, like we, you know, of course, all these people are shooting big deer and it's like, man, I wish I could get one. And, you know, we put all this emphasis on it, but in reality, like, like I said earlier, we don't all have the opportunity to do that. We don't all have a property that holds 150, 60, 70, 80, 180 inch deer. Like, I mean, to shoot a 200 inch whitetail is like a one in a million. That's a unicorn, mm -hmm. you know? And even if you manage properly and if you're doing what you're doing to only, you know, shoot does or, you know, 160 inch plus, like your deer can leave. Somebody else can shoot them. Like you can only control, so much, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, and so this year I actually, neither one of my kids have harvested a deer yet. And it's not of a lack of opportunity. Like this year I took them out for a youth season and it, I have a 10 year old and a 14 year old and I run my guide service here in Michigan and everything like that. So they do hear a lot of like, you know, other people passing because it's not, it's not trophy quality or it's not what they wanted. You know, I want, I'm somebody's looking for a six point or more that we're not going to shoot a four point, you know? So my kids hear all of that, or like they see me not willing to shoot an eight point. And unfortunately it has hindered that a little bit, but this year we went out specifically for, for doe. 
Mm-hmm. And they could have taken either, but they both agreed with me that, you know, we're going to do the earn a buck. And, you know, if it changes in the blind, I'm completely open to that. But it was their idea that, nope, we really want to do your earn a buck. Cause that's my personal rule. Not mm-hmm. like for myself, not theirs. So anyways, I take them both out deer hunting and I have, I'm a single mom. So I'm by myself with both my kids. And I actually set up an A-frame blind for like my A-frames for um, when I guide geese. And I set one of those up just so I could mask our movement and have all three of us in the blind comfortably that like if, you know, we had to run the thermocells because it was hot, the bugs Mm -hmm. were really bad. Like it was just, that's what was to me an innovative way to go deer hunting, but to keep them comfortable, engaged that if they wanted to get up and move around, we could do that without blowing deer out of the field. So we're out hunting and my, my oldest told me that because he got a turkey this year that he wasn't going to shoot first, that he wanted his little brother to go first. He said, I got a a turkey this year. He didn't get one. So he needs to deer hunt first. Completely their choice wasn't like a rock, paper, scissor. It was, I am forfeiting my shot opportunity until he gets his. And um, so anyways, we had a group of deer come in and I was like, all right, like get ready. And I get him up on it. And mind you, I practice with my kids on firearms, but he got... He got a little bit of target panic that once that doe is in front of him, he's like sitting there and he, you know, he's trying to find it in the scope and he gets it. And I said, are you on it? He's like, yeah. And I said, okay, well, when you're ready, like we have him up on the sticks. I said, you know, when you're ready, you can turn the safety off and he never clicks the safety. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, buddy? And he's like, I just, I don't know that I want to do it. And I said, that's okay. So we put the gun down and we watched them go through the field. And a little bit later he puts his gun back up and I was like, are you ready again? And he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do it. all right, we'll get them in your sights. And once you're comfortable, you let me know and we'll turn the safety off. And he gets it up and he just sits there again. And I'm like, are are you ready? And a buck walked out and it was one of the coolest bucks that I have yet to see ever with my eyes. It was a small buck, but it was like a chocolate color, real chocolate colored. Like his coat was real chocolate. His antlers were real chocolate. And he was like, I don't know, maybe a four or a six point. I don't really remember. I just remember being kind of in awe with how dark he was. And my son's like, can I shoot him? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so he moves the gun over and he puts it on him and he's like, decides not to pull the trigger. And I said, what, what's going on? And he's like, I just feel like I'd miss. I think I want to practice more and I'll try again next year. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So then the next day I told him, I asked him, he's like, yeah, I'm going to sleep in. I think that when you guys get back, we'll just target practice. I think I need another year of practice. And I said, okay. I said, well, then I'm going to take your brother out. So I took his brother out the next day (laughs) and he's 14. And we decided to sit in the A-frame again. And it was just him and I, and we're sitting in the field and the fog's rolling through and the sun's coming up and it's like legal shooting, like three minutes before legal light. And um, you see these deer start moving through the fog. And I'm like counting down the minutes, right? And I'm like, if they're still in the field, once this is legal shooting light, we're good to go. So just keep an eye on them, stay quiet. And unfortunately they moved out on us, like right at legal shooting light. Like I want to say like 30 seconds before legal shooting light. And I'm super adamant about that. Like we don't, we don't play with that at all. That I typically like kind of give a, a, a minute or two handicap of like, okay, if it's seven o'clock, we're not shooting till seven Oh two. If legal shooting lights only till we'll say five 30, then we're, we're done shooting and we're unloaded by five 28. Mm-hmm. So I I've taught that with my kids too. So we watch these deer leave and we sit there and, you know, he's eating his snacks and a couple of doe walk into the field. And one is like huge. And I, 
I put her on the range finder and he told me he wasn't comfortable past about 60 yards. Okay. She's at 120. We're going to sit, we're going to wait. They start moving in and they get within range. And I was like, you know, buddy, get, get your gun up. And he gets the gun up and we're sitting there and I'm like ranging her as she's stepping in. And as soon as she breaks that 60 yards, I said, you know, when you're ready, safety off, you can pull the trigger. He's just sitting there. And I was like, buddy. And I'm like, what do you, you, buddy, what are you doing? And he just sits there. And then an airplane, a crop dust plane comes over us and it spooks the deer out of the field. And he sets his gun down. And first initial thought was, did I scare him? And I was like, no, it was a plane. And he's like, there was a plane. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, so what happened there? And he's like, I don't even know. He's like, I just, he like fell into a trance watching her that he didn't like, he couldn't hear me talking to him. He just zoned in on that deer. And he's like, she was beautiful. And he just appreciated the experience. And I was like, okay, I'm doing it right. Yeah. I mean, there was plenty of nights where I would go out and sit in my tree stand on our Kentucky farm and just watch deer, like, you know, just not interested in shooting that particular deer, you know, or only looking for a buck or something, you know, we've got the does that we need, but it's just so neat to sit out there and watch animals in their environment. And with, when you, when they don't know, and I think people don't realize that, that there's, there's a lot of, of learned skills and information from just doing that, from just observing, um, you know, an appreciation for those animals in their natural environment. Like people don't understand that, that type of appreciation, um, that I think a hunters when they're out there and you just like, man, that is just so cool to watch that. And like, you've never seen that before. And how many people don't get to see this, don't get to experience that. And I think that's one thing that I really love about it. And again, there's a lot of things I miss about Kentucky and that's some of it, you know, and like last, I think uh, maybe two years ago, we went back to Kentucky for Christmas and I went back to my friend's house who has the farm and where I shot my first deer and I was sitting in his blind by his feeder and some does came in and I was just back there with my bow, just if something came in, but I was like, man, it's really neat to like sit here and like reminisce about every, my, like my whole hunting life and I didn't shoot a deer that night. Like I never even pulled my bow back. I never even, t- you know, got it up to even think about pulling it back or anything, but it was just so nice to just like sit there in that peace and quiet and just watch these animals without them even knowing and just appreciate all of that. And yeah. I think people don't understand that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a huge advocate of just grabbing my camera and going and sitting in the mm-hmm. blind. Like if it's just me and I don't need to fill the freezer. I've done that actually quite a bit this season of just like grabbing the camera and going to sit. I don't need to kill it. Yeah. I, I quite enjoy it. Like turkey season. Uh, turkeys are my absolute favorite. But if I didn't have the kids with me, I would just grab the camera and go sit. And it's yeah. it's also another form of my scouting for when I'm going to take a client out. But I, it also gives me the opportunity to get some excellent photos of those animals mm-hmm. for me to watch them, you know, interact without them knowing I'm there and I can learn their habits or what they're eating at like a closer mm-hmm. range to being with them and, and even kind a of whole monitor. different perspective like with a different goal like your goal isn't out there to shoot something you right. know and I think that makes you you have, you have it like a different attitude about it and a different you know it, you're just out there for a different reason at that point which I yeah. enjoy like when we duck hunt like if I'm by myself obviously I'm having to shoot and manage the dog but if John's with me or if we've got friends with us like I will usually say I'm not even going to shoot I'm just going to work with the dog like I really enjoy that piece of it you know I'll take my gun I'll have my box of shells at that point it's just about me and the dog 
and managing that piece of it. And that's a piece that I really appreciate from the duck hunting side, because I don't have the need to always shoot the animal. Like that's not necessarily what I'm there for. I'm there for that handler side of it. And I really like that piece of the duck hunting. And so it's really nice to get out there for like kind of a different reason um, versus just always out there to like shoot something or kill something. So. And I think that also falls within like the maturity level as a hunter like mm-hmm. where you, where your maturity level is. And I think that for the most part, most hunters have that same process, same feeling. I'm sure there's people that go out there for the harvest and that's fine. Like yeah. not, not saying that that's not okay. But I think that most people who are especially avid in the outdoors, they do it because they have a passion for more than just hunting. Like mm-hmm. these pheasant hunt guides that we work with, they don't care if they ever shoot a pheasant. They just yeah. really enjoy being out there. They enjoy watching everyone else do it. They enjoy working their dogs. It's beautiful. It's exercise. It's fantastic food. Like there's so many different aspects that hunting can lead you down all these avenues of why it's important to do it, how freeing and therapeutic it is for an individual. And I think that like, as a whole, the respect that an, an outdoors person, cause like you were saying earlier about like managing your food plots or hiking in those mountains, like there is a lot of work and a lot of effort and some luck without mm-hmm. being a hunter, with being a successful hunter, you can do everything right. And you may not harvest. It just happens, but there's a lot of hard earned blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it that once somebody does manage to get that trophy, whether it's a goose, whether it's a duck, whether it's a mountain lion, an elk, a bear, a deer, it doesn't matter. They put effort into that. And even if it's, you're out there practicing and you hired an outfitter, doesn't matter. You still had to put so much effort to get that animal on the ground. That to me is a success story in itself, regardless of how you obtained it, as long as it's legal. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Like, and I think most people don't like most non-hunters don't even understand there's so much more involved than just going out and shooting an animal. Like if we could just go out and shoot an animal, like we wouldn't have, we would have a lot more time on our hands to do other things um, besides hunt, you know, um, that you only, a lot of people only get one chance or one opportunity or one you know, like we only have one elk tag, one deer tag. Like we don't get to go out and shoot everything or multiple animals you know we don't so when we go out we have to put in effort and if we shoot something first day we're done and that's not like yeah it'd be great to shoot an elk on the first day of season and be like oh I don't have to hike all these miles anymore but in the end like I enjoy that part of it like I enjoy running trail cameras that's something we do all summer long Mm-hmm. just to like, not even in places where we hunt, like I put trail cameras places that I'm never even going to hunt just because I like seeing the animals and I like getting those pictures of them. And I enjoy hiking and going in the mountains and spending time there. Like I take my dog in the summer, we live at the base of the mountain. So I like the mountains are my backyard. Basically I can just go, a, you know, a mile up the road to the trailhead and take my dog and I've got hundreds of thousands of acres to like play on, you know, and it's, it's nice to be able to do that, but people don't realize how much effort I think a lot of hunters put into hunting and getting one animal or the opportunity at one animal and maybe not even getting anything. Like there's a lot of effort and you might not come out with anything, but I feel like even if I don't come out of season with an animal with my tag notched like I've gained something from it like this year has been rough with elk season I I got a different tag 
in a unit I'm not familiar with. It was archery season. Then it turned to rifle for cow elk only archery season. I hunted a lot by myself because I didn't have, I didn't have a choice. John was working. He was working six days a week. So I was forced to go by myself, which I don't really like doing. I'm not I don't, I'm not really a fan of solo hunting. I would prefer to do it with someone else. Just, I think it's more enjoyable to be hiking anyway. Like I don't mind sitting somewhere by myself, but I, I don't like sitting now that I'm so ingrained in like hiking now, you know, and it's more of a hike and look and try to find tracks and that sort of thing. But I'm probably coming out of season empty handed, but I did, I did something this year that I didn't think I'd be able to do. I went places where I've never been before by myself and accomplished that goal and overcame kind of a fear. And to me, that's good enough. Like, yeah, it would be really nice to have an elk in the freezer. Fortunately, John got one during, he drew a lottery tag. So we have meat in the freezer, but I came out of the season, not with an animal, not with a notch tag, but with learning so many things about hunting and about myself in those situations, which I think is always a plus. Like if you can come out of it, having gained something, a skill or knowledge, then you've won. I've always had that mentality that if you, if you think that you're done learning, you're, you probably shouldn't be doing this anymore. Whether it's about yourself, whether it's about an environment, whether it's about the animal, there is literally something every time I go out that I take away from it. And I, I instill that in our girls when they're coming out with us with women of the wild is like, every time you come out, no matter how much you think you've mastered something, you're still going to learn something. It might be about your equipment. It mm-hmm. might be about that animal. It might be about the environment, anything. But if you think that you're done learning about something, you're not doing it right. Yeah. And, I mean, and people that have hunted their whole lives, you know, they, they can still learn something from a brand new hunter, just a different perspective on how to look at something. And, you know, that's, I, I, I did another article about like women in deer camp, because there's like this huge, like negative perception about like, I see a lot of comments on social media about, <clears throat> you know, negativity towards women and how guys treat women. And I've been fortunate not to ever have that experience. Like I've, we go to elk camp every year. It's usually, it's an older group of people. Most of the time with, you know, the guys are hunting, the wives are usually not hunting and sometimes they do, but they hang out at camp or whatever, but it's always been a very welcoming experience that since the first day I went when I didn't know anyone there. Um, so I've always had a very positive experience. I've had positive experiences, purchasing my bow, purchasing guns. Like I've never had this like negative attitude towards me as a woman. And I don't know if that's because where I am here, like it's very commonplace for women to hunt. Like a lot of the women hunt here where in other places, maybe that's not the case or it hasn't been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did an article about, you know, welcoming women. Like if you're in that, in that camp of women don't belong, like, why are you, why do you have that mindset? Or here's how you could welcome somebody. And that was, I I got some quotes off some different pages. Like I asked on a couple of different um, women's hunting groups that I'm part of on Facebook, if they had any experiences they would like to share. And one of them was a girl that said, you know, she had gone to deer camp with her husband for the first time. And afterwards, one of the other guys that had, you know, years of experience came up and was like, man, I really liked the way you did that. That was a good idea. And she was like, I felt so weird because 
he was telling me I was doing a good job. Like he learned something from me and that was surprising. And it's just, it's proof that no matter how long you've been doing something, there's always something you can learn. There's always something you can take away from it, from, from somebody, whether they have just very little experience, like be open to that and be open to learning. And I think that would help us a lot. Yeah. In a lot I mean, of ways. I've, worked, I've worked with guides all over the nation and even internationally. And that's one thing like, I've heard a lot is like, I took this client out and this, they're like, they're still learning, even taking clients out. And it's, it might not be about the animal, but like a new way, an innovative way to carry this or Mm -hmm. how they did something or, you know, how they prepared themselves for the hunt or whatever it is. Cause I know when we do like the, the South uh, West Texas hunts in the mountains, that was something that the outfitter had said, like when we were preparing the girls for it, when we were talking about like getting ready for it as like, put a wet sock in your mouth, run 10 miles on a treadmill and you might be ready for these mountains. Not exaggerating. Like it is hell, but there's an enjoyment in the suffering for a lot of hunters. But like, it's just, it's funny to me that we have that. I don't know, just the concept of like, it's easy. Cause it's not. It's definitely not. So, um, we are coming up to uh, being on, you know, an hour for the podcast. I've really loved having you on. We have we have one more short break to take to hear from our closing sponsors. Um, so we'll be right back, and we're going to finish listening and hearing what Sarah has going on. And now to the final segment to this week's episode of Women of the Wild podcast. We will conclude this segment by thanking our closing sponsors. Stay tuned for more of this week's episode after this short word from our sponsors. Muzzy Pheasant Farms, a mid-Michigan family-owned and operated pheasant game preserve that is open year-round. Muzzy offers educational courses and hunts. They are family-oriented, creating a great opportunity for new and seasoned upland hunters. With no membership required, come hunt with Muzzy Pheasant Farms. You can find more information at muzzypheasantfarms.com or check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Blast and Cast Guide Service is a veteran-owned and operated Michigan-based guide service for the Great Lakes. With decades of experience of fishing and waterfowl, they ensure a safe and enjoyable trip every time. You can check them out at blastingcastguideservice.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Ultimate Veteran Adventures. UVA offers outdoor therapy, recreation, and camaraderie through hunting and fishing adventures around the country for veterans, active duty military, Gold Star families, and first responders. You can find them at Ultimate Veteran Adventures. You can find them at ultimateveteranadventures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Sawmill Creek Bait and Lures, a husband and wife owned and operated company, the home of the C4, one of the best trapping canine lures on the market. You can find them at sawmillcreekbaitandlures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Wicked 7 Outdoors, a Southwest Texas outfitter guide service with an exceptional care and quality of backcountry mountain hunts for free range audad. Also offering high fence and low fence exotics, come immerse yourself in the outdoor experience. You can find Wicked 7 Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram. Misguided Outdoors is a female-driven Michigan-based guide service offering turkey and waterfowl hunts. Misguided is focused on educating women and youth providing a hands-on hunt experience for all ages. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. We thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. So welcome back. Uh, We are here with Sarah and we have dug into, dug our heels really into just embracing hunters as a whole, as women, who she is as a person. 
And we we were just discussing before curb marshal break about women being accepted in the outdoors. And with you, with Huntress View and everything, that's obviously a massive aspect of your life and especially as a female hunter. So before we, we go to closing, I would love if you have any any tips, tricks, or education that you're willing to share with our listeners or inspiration to get women in the outdoors? Absolutely. You know, I think as a female and someone that did not come from a hunting background, and I didn't have any women to look to, and that's why I turned to social media for the hunting side of it. Um, You know, when I started hunting, social media wasn't nearly as big as it is now, but, you know, I started finding groups online on Facebook. And um, I didn't even have an Instagram at the time, but I eventually got one, of course, but I found Huntress View. I found Real Camo Girl and just other pages and was able to connect with other women and learn from them. Even though most of these people I've never met in real life, being able to connect with somebody online and connect with people that are like real life people, like out there putting in the work, like from a social media standpoint, I don't really follow a lot of like the influencer types um, because it's not really who I am. And it's, that's not really my goal is I'm not trying to be an influencer. I, my background is in marketing. So I understand the marketing side of that. And I understand the product pushes. And to me, that's just not my, you know, preference to follow that type of person. I want to follow people that I can really look up to or, you know, message them if I have a question or if I see something that's like, man, that looks really cool. How'd you do that? Or can you, you know, reference that and send me a link to that? Like, I want to know that there's people out there that I can, you know, talk to and learn from. So I would say for anyone new getting into it or anyone looking to learn more, which we all should be, you know, rely on social media, but don't use it as like necessarily like your goals, like learn from it. You know, don't, don't get jealous of other people because they're, you know, getting a big buck or they got to go on a guided hunt or whatever, but use those resources that we have available because it's, we don't all live in an area where we have a lot of in-person resources where I live. I don't have like classes or there's not really a lot of like group hunts here. Like I would have to travel to do that type of thing, but I can use social media still to learn from a lot of people and get a lot of information and education for myself and share my experiences and positive and negative with other people. Um, And I think that's really important is to understand that there is negatives that come with hunting. You know, a lot of times what we see on social media is the kill shot. Like it's, you got the trophy, but it's not really, that's not it. That's not the only piece of it. There's a whole lot of before and there's a whole lot of after, you know, and somebody new coming into it needs to understand those things that it's not just going out one time shooting a deer and you're done. Like, what did you, you have work to do with that? How did you prep for a hunt? What type of gear? And with Huntress View, like I joined them, I think about maybe eight years ago, it, it seems like it's hasn't been that long, but I think it has been. And I joined them because it was one of the first groups I came across that was women specific. And the content that they put out is women's gear reviews. It's very targeted towards women and a lot of like recipes and things like that. And I like cooking. So that was, you know, something that I was interested in is I've got all this meat. Like, what do I do with it? How can I do something different than, you know, the same spaghetti and meatballs every night or whatever, you know, so having that resource was, was really helpful 
as someone who did not have anyone in person that I could talk to or learn from. Um, and I think there's a lot of groups like that. You know, you guys, Huntress View, Real Camo Girl, Duck Huntress, She Huntress. Like there's a lot of organizations out there and a lot of groups and pages out there that we can all learn from and contribute to. And I think that's just really important, you know, to understand that we do have that out there because what you post on like a women's hunting page is very different. You'll get very different responses. If you post the same question on a mint, like a, a co-ed, I guess, hunting page, you, you know, if I just post something on the Idaho hunters page, it's going to be very different responses than what I get from a women's perspective. And there's things that we probably want to talk about from a women's perspective that we don't need guys having their input on it. <laughs> we had, so we had a uh, Jerry on a podcast previously and we, we dug into like waiters and bibs and, and stuff that fit a women's woman's body. And I, I we kind of chuckled that this is probably TMI. And I said, I mean, it is, but keep it rolling because this is real conversations yeah. that we need to have that if you're facing this, issue other women are too and somebody just might not be willing to talk about it but it's very relatable and it's important or just the support like women just kind of get each other and mm -hmm. as long as you're you're coming into something and you're providing advice or education or or even learning from you know that might be something a woman posted something that maybe you were uncomfortable asking but you could learn from it right awesome like that's and, the point of what we do everybody makes a bad shot. Like if you haven't yet, you're going to like, it's inevitable. Like as a hunter, we don't want to make bad shots. That's not our goal, but it's going to happen eventually. If you post something about a bad shot on a, like, again, a co-ed page and when women's and men's type page, you're going to get a bashing. If you post it on a women's page, like I see it all the time. It's going to be like, it happens to all of us, you know, here's some steps you can take, or, you know, it's a very, just a different experience. And I like that, mm -hmm. you know, it, and obviously, you know, I'm not anti-male at all. Um, you know, I'm on these pages, but it is just different. And I think guys just don't understand. And I don't, I don't think most of them do it out of like being, trying to be mean to anyone. I think mm -hmm. it's just kind of how it is, you know, it's like, that's how they talk to their buddies or whatever, but it's just, we get a different response from women. And I don't know if it is like the emotional side of it. Like they, like women tend to have that more emotional like aspect of it where the guys are just like, well, why would you take a shot if you didn't think it was going to be a good one? Like there's no like understanding, <laughs> which right. is kind of frustrating, but I guess that's like guys in general, um, about everything. But, but yeah, I think that's, you know, from a, from a female's perspective, I think that's kind of one thing that, like I said, I would, I would tell women to, to join those types of pages and look to those types of pages for, you know, information and to learn and to get advice from, because there's a wealth of information out there from people all over the country and the world that have different experiences. And many of them have had similar experiences that they can give you their input from. Absolutely. I think that's, and that's really the key is, is joining hands and, and finding that sisterhood and being able, even if you don't plan on hunting with, with a group, it's great to get in there and like, get to know people, whether you, whether you ever have the opportunity to meet them in person, most of these women that run these pages are are real women. Um, yeah. and they're not like these influencers, they're normal no. people like you, like myself, like you message us, we're going to respond. And we are more than happy. There's I always say there's no stupid question. The only stupid question is one not asked because mm -hmm. if you're thinking it, someone else probably has to. And it's so important to just, 
embrace that from especially women. And like you said, it's not that it's we're anti-men or anything like that. It's just some of us have a lot of women have had that ridicule from men Mm -hmm. and they want that safe space. Or maybe they've been through something with, you know, an ex-boyfriend where they got kind of like, you know, put down or or ragged on a little bit. Sometimes women don't have as thick of skin as men and we just perceive things differently. We, our inner workings are a little bit different. So sometimes it's it's not that these women aren't willing to go on hunts with men, but they just it's a safer space for them mentally, emotionally, but also physically. Mm-hmm. That sometimes that's what they want, and it's respecting that. You know, us hosting co-ed events, we're you know it's it's not anything against like trying to keep men out of the outdoors or like I've had you know the comments of men that are like if I put a dress on can I come? Like there's events for you and there's opportunities for men just as much as there are for women, it's just, are you really willing to, to dip your toes into that, to find it with another group? But I I do find it funny that you see a lot of these women's groups. Like this is where men and women differ, right? Like I see posts all the time from other women's groups where we're doing a post and it is, I, you don't know anybody, but Hey, let's get a group of girls together and go hunt. I've never seen that done by men. And it's funny to me that women, while we have our insecurities and we have like our emotional, like state of where we're at, that we are willing to drive across the country, meet a stranger at a gas station to go hunt with them just because it's another woman. We're like men. I haven't, and maybe it's just me not seeing it, but I have yet to ever see a men's group doing what these women's groups do, where it's bringing people from all over the country to meet each other and hunt together and like build that sisterhood or like that camaraderie in the outdoors together. It's usually when you see a group of guys hunting their buddies, but to go like, it might be a pride thing. (laughs) And maybe that is, but I just, while we were discussing this, that's something that kind of popped up in my head that it's, it's ironic to me that like the conversation of like, you know, maybe our skin's not as thick or, or maybe we're not, but it's funny to me that, that we do that. And we're so like willing, like we have our Texas crane hunt for December And it's women from all over, all over the nation, right? Like all over the place. And they're like, most of them don't know each other. Like you might grab one girlfriend and be like, Hey, let's go do this. But for the most part, this is going to be an entire group of 10 women who have never met each other. Yeah. And they're all like, let's go. But I've just, I've never seen that. that. Like I have not been able to get on one of the like a women's hunt like I've it just never worked out from a timing or travel perspective um because again where I live is kind of very isolated and it takes a lot for me to travel somewhere but I think it is great when I see these groups of women coming together from like you said all over that have never met maybe they follow each other on social media so they have like some knowledge of who this person is so they're not necessarily like total strangers but knowing someone in person versus knowing someone on social media or online is very different. I mean, we can put whatever we want on social media and be whoever we want, but when you get somebody in person, then you really learn about people. But from what I've seen in a lot of like the follow-up posts, it seems like it's, it typically is a good time, you know? And I think it's great because a lot of women can come together with different experiences levels, different backgrounds, different areas of the country for one purpose and to rock it. And I think that's awesome. I've actually met some of lifelong best friends through resources like this. Um, yeah. I went on a hunt. It wasn't even through Women of the Wild, but I'm a huge advocate of supporting other women's groups. So it was with another woman's group. And I met 
my friend Kim, who is down in Texas. And every year we, hell or high water, we figure out a way to meet each other. So in January, I brought a group of girls down for a crane hunt and she stopped what she was doing to come. And she brought all 10 of our girls, little goodie bags of like local Texas coffee and honey and jam and candles and stuff like that. But it's funny to me that that originally that was somebody that we followed each other on social media, but we had never even had a conversation. Like I shouldn't say that we had had conversations, but it was like, I remember she messaged me once, gosh, years before this. And we were talking about shooting cranes with our bows. And so we like knew each other through social media, but you don't know each other. Like you just said, and we did one event, I think it's been like two years or so now, but we did one event together and we hunted together and we've became like best friends. We talk all the time. When we harvest something, we call each other. And that's the one thing that for me, when I see that follow-up, whether it's with our group or another, and I see these girls that didn't know each other become friends. And then like the next week they're out hunting somewhere else, just the two of them or, you know, whatever. To me, that's the success in all this, because you have now banded that sisterhood that much stronger by conjoining those two people together or three people, four people, a group, it doesn't matter. Like I have I don't use Snapchat, but I have one just for a women's group. I have like a couple women's groups that we talk in there and it's from women all over the place and they just come together and they just congratulate and share each other's success without it being put all over social media. And I love that. I think that it's great that we're able to embrace it. And I think there's, while we talked about the negativity, I do think that there is much more positive impact that comes out of all of this than the negative. Um, But it is a it is a full spectrum. You're going to, with anything that's good, you're going to get the bad with it. And a big piece of advice that I like to tell women is like, don't ever let one person ruin it for you. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree with that. Like, cause like you said, there's always going to be negative and, you know, take all of the positive. And I think that's kind of something we all lack is it's so easy to like focus on the negative. And that's something that I've really tried to do personally is just try to not focus on the positive or the negative and and focus on the positive. What are the things that I can change? What are the things that I can control? And those are the things that I want to focus on. Like, I don't even watch the news. My mom gets mad at me because that she'll like, Oh, did you see this on the news? I'm like, well, I haven't watched the news in like two years. Like, I don't need that negativity. Like, I don't want that in my life. Like I try to figure out what's going on in the world because it's important. But in the end, I'm more concerned about the things that are happening right here, like, and what I can control because I don't want all of these negative things like bearing down on me and putting me in this like bad negative mood all the time. And I think social media is the same way. Like I don't follow things that I don't want to see or things that make me in a bad mood. A lot of my social media is hunting and dog videos. That's what I like to see. (laughs) It makes me laugh. It makes me smile. And If we can focus on that, then I think that will make everyone a little bit happier and the world a lot better place if we can just think of some positive things instead of all the negative all the time. Absolutely. So as far as education, do you have anything that is, I don't know, a tip, a trick or any point of education that you are like super passionate about that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, I mean, I would say just be open and willing to learn and try different things you know, and, and that's what I've done. I've gotten out of my comfort zone with a lot of things I've tried. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing about hunting is, is just getting out there and experiencing something. And again, being willing to try something different. Okay. I've never done this before. I may not like it, but at least give it a shot. 
And if you don't like it, you don't like it and you don't have to do it again. But, you know, don't, don't make a choice because somebody said, this is what you have to do, or this is what you need to do. Like do it because it's something you want to try and you want to do. And then if you don't like it, don't do it, you know? Um, but I think just always being willing to be, you know, to learn something new, take advice from people, you know, educate yourself, try something. I think that's going to make us all better hunters. And, and, and that, that goes for anyone new to hunting or with experience and with years of experience, there's like we talked about earlier, there's always something new to learn. Um, so I would just say, just be open to other things, other opinions, other thoughts and insights, um, to just kind of expand your knowledge base and your experience. Yeah, that would probably be it. I love that. It's, that really is like the truth of it all. Like just go out and experience it find out if you like it or not. And if you don't, that's okay. But at least yeah. now, you know, so I have to know before, like, I've absolutely loved talking to you and I have to know what your bucket list hunt is that you haven't completed yet. It would probably be a mountain goat, but I'll probably never do it. Like I don't even apply for it here because I'm trying to get my moose tag, but like if there, if, if money and skill was no option, you know, like no, you know, hold back, then I would say I would love to get a mountain goat. Cause I think it would just, they're amazing little animals, probably something I'll never be able to accomplish to be honest. But this year I did have my bucket list duck. I know ducks are like, people don't really care about ducks that much. And my bucket list duck was a buffle head, a Drake buffle head. And we have them here usually this time of year. I don't know. I've just never been able to shoot one. Like I've shot at them. I've dropped them and just not been able to like watch them fly off after dropping them two or three times in the water. And then they fly off. They've always evaded my shots. And I actually went out this year with that goal. I'm like, I found some one day and I was like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not stopping hunting until I get one of these this year. And I got two, I got two Drake buffle heads and one is in the freezer ready for the taxidermist. So I did accomplish that this year. So, but yeah, I think for like big game, it would probably be a mountain goat, which is probably not attainable, more attainable, like a moose. Um, I'd like to get a moose because I think they're neat. Yeah. I, I love both of those. Um, and it just so goes to show the demographic, right? Because here, bufflehead are like a dime a dozen. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, I got a limit of buffleheads today. And I'm like, I can't even get one. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, a, I don't know. Uh, a filler bird for us yeah. that like if you need a couple more to hit limit you're going to shoot a couple buffies but it's funny because across like demographically wise when I see other people that aren't from this area it's like that unicorn duck for yeah. them and they're stunning like don't get me wrong they're absolutely beautiful birds a drake bufflehead is their colors is like mm -hmm. unlike any other bird they're absolutely stunning definitely see why they're a bucket list for people but like here it's it's funny for me to hear that from people because like when I think bucket list birds I'm thinking like pintail or you know a cinnamon teal or a king eider and then it's like one of those common birds for us but it's it's also not super common everywhere else and then like the way that they fly and everything is going to be a, like where they're going to hold up in areas is going to be a little dip, bit different state to state but mountain goat girl, I'm with you there. Um, I'm a big goat sheep person. Like mine is an Ibex. So like mountain goats, anything that's sheep or goat related, I'm all about it. So I actually love that. And I don't know, I don't, I don't ever think that it's unobtainable. I think that everything falls into place for a reason there where you're at. Um, you guys, are you able to do uh, mountain goat? Is it like lottery system? Do you acquire points or is it something that 
Um, Cause I know a lot of States it's like strictly lottery. We're here in Michigan for like our elk and our bear it's lottery where you have to get points, but your points kind of carry over for year to mm-hmm. year that you can wait and you can not apply for the tag. You can just do the points. And then when you're ready, you can apply for that license and it's almost guaranteed. Or is it just flat out every year is a start fresh and it's lottery. So we are actually fortunate not to have a lottery system like a, or a point system. I'm sorry. We're not, we do not have a point system here, um, which is good because I'm not a fan of point systems, but our, we have um, like our, our t- top, like our three, like once in a lifetime tags are mountain goat, bighorn sheep and moose. Um, so you can apply for those. And like John got drew on, he drew his moose tag his first year that he ever applied for it. But we wow. have friends that have applied for 20 years and still not gotten it. So it is a strictly a lottery. You know, our moose population has gone down. So they actually lowered the number of tags. So I think where I put in, like we have, I think like 78 units in Idaho. I put in, the unit I put in, it dropped from, I believe, like 15 tags when the year that John drew it to, I think now it's only seven tags. So drawing it is very difficult. So I've been putting in for like eight years and not drawing it. John drew his first year. Um, but like mountain goat and bighorn sheep are even lower odds. I mean, you have like a 1% chance of drawing it. Um, but those are once in a lifetime tags. So once you've drawn it, you can never draw that tag again. Um, we do have like a super hunt that you can put in for that. You, if you've hunted your once in a lifetime tag and you draw a super hunt tag, you can hunt that animal any unit, any weapon, um, but obviously very difficult to draw that. And then for elk, we have, it just differs by unit. We have some that is, that are draw hunts. And then we have a lot of over-the-counter um, tags. It just depends on the unit, the timing. Um, you know, we have a, where we normally archery hunt, it's an over-the-counter tag, but it literally sells out within 20 minutes. So it's very hard to get now where, when I first came out here, I wouldn't even buy the tag until I got here in September, but now our tags go on sale in July, I believe, and you have to be logged in and then you're put in like a virtual waiting line. And this year I was like number 5,400 in line and it was sold out before I even got my, you know, got to the checkout. So it's become a lot more competitive, but, um, but, you know, so I did end up getting a different over-the-counter tag, but yeah, we don't have a point system here. So it is just strict lottery or over-the-counter. It just depends on the tag, um, and the animal. And it's, every state is different. Um, and every regulation is different. Like we discussed earlier in the podcast, populations are a big piece of that management. Like you said, with the moose, they're cut in half now. Yeah. Um, but I will say, it is great to hear as much as it sucks. Like it's great to hear that you're 5,400 in a waiting room, because that just goes to show that there's that many hunters interested in the outdoors and purchasing tags and trying their hand at it. I've always heard, especially out hunting with the the guys that it's like, I don't want to share my spot or, or I don't want to share this information because, you know, that's my, my tip, my trick. And I don't want other people doing it. And I feel like as women, we're like, we'll tell you everything. Like, we'll tell you how we did it, where we did it. Like, we're just, we're, we're wired differently that I think that's like an exciting piece to us as women is we're, ex- we're excited to share that experience with someone else. So to, to hear that there's that many tags, you know, that you're in waiting rooms like that. Um, I think it's exciting to hear that we have that many hunters engaging in the outdoors. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it is, it's frustrating on one hand because obviously I want to hunt that unit and it's frustrating not to get the tag, but it's also, we have to have people that want to hunt because if we don't, we don't, none of us are going to get to hunt. 
And, you know, I see when, when people talk about, you know, the three R's and, um, you know, getting people into hunting and bringing new people on board. And it's almost like this negative thing. But in the end, like I said, if we don't have new people coming in, we're going to all be gone one day. Like we're not going to have it. We have to have people that are willing to go out and hunt. We have to have people that are willing to support us. Otherwise, the louder side, the anti side is going to speak louder than us and they're going to get our rights taken away. And we see it happening all day or every day, all the time with, I mean, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, you see it a lot there. I mean, with different hunts being taken away, no longer predator hunting. I think Colorado, I just saw something is trying to eliminate like mountain lion huntings and, you know, with places introducing wolves, like, and not managing wolves and not managing grizzly bears, like things like that, the anti-hunters are winning and it's up to us and hunters coming in and learning about it to be able to sustain that and have this for the future. I mean, I don't plan to stop hunting anytime. I'm 43. I plan to live a, a long, hopefully life, you know, and I plan to hunt that whole time. So in 10, 15, 20 years, I still want to have those abilities. I don't have kids, but I have a lot of friends that do. And they're, I want their kids to be able to hunt and go outdoors and enjoy that. And I want their kids, kids to do that, you know, so I want to just make sure that we have that. So even though it is frustrating to not get those tags and to maybe run into other hunters on public land in the end, we have to have that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it, it is what it is. You know, we have to have that in order to have what we have. Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely important to have that. And I know that we have kind of hit all aspects of, of everything in the outdoors. And I would love, I would love for you to share where anyone can get a hold of you, any companies you work with or the Huntress View or anything like that, where people can find you on social media platforms and connect with you. And then we'll also share them in the thumbnail of this post for people to be able to connect with those types of women's groups with you, if anyone has any questions. Sure. Um, yeah. So my, so my Instagram is really where I would prefer people follow me. I try to keep my Facebook more personal, but you know, I do accept for a friend request there from certain people. Um, but my Instagram is sarah.honadel.outdoors. Um, so feel free. And it's a public page. So, you know, no requesting or anything, but feel free to follow me there. Um, I like to follow people back. And then Huntress View is huntressview.com and they're on Facebook as Huntress View and Instagram as Huntress View. That's really it. I, I do hang out on Go Wild. I don't know if you're familiar with the Go Wild app, but I actually really like Go Wild over Instagram uh, just because it is all hunters, all outdoors people, and there's really no negativity. So I would suggest if, you know, if somebody's kind of tired of the, the normal social media and has not checked out Go Wild, definitely do that. I really enjoy it because there's, it's more of following topics versus following people. And they've really put an emphasis on following based on content versus like influencer type, you know? Um, so it's not about who's the most you know popular person, but it's about getting the content that you want to get. So I'm out there as well. And, you know, feel free to join me on Go Wild. Yes. And Go Wild is a fantastic resource that's not limiting what we're able to post as exactly. far as being in the outdoors. So that's, I haven't been on it in a while, uh, but Go Wild is a fantastic resource, especially with connecting. You can ask questions, mm -hmm. you can suggest gear and things like that. So I agree with you, Sarah. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It was great to dive into who you are because social media doesn't always give us that ability. Um, so it's really great that you came on and and shared your story with us, just your inspiration, like being full encompassing of, of embodying a, an outdoors woman. You truly are that. And I want to thank, thank you. you for your time, especially during hunting season. <laughs> um, I wish you luck for the rest of your season. 
And I hope to talk with you more soon, but go check her out on Instagram on go wild um, and check out the Huntress view and all these other women's pages who are out there contributing to get more women into the outdoors, creating a safe space, providing education, providing opportunities. It's really important for us as women to embrace that for other women. So even if it's not something that you want to go do, share them out, um, share those posts, you know, be engaging on them. You might learn something or you might be able to teach someone else something. We have us here with Women of the Wild. We have some really great events coming up and 2024 is going to be another fantastic year. We have our calendars and cookbooks out showcasing women in the outdoors, showcasing youth, showcasing recipes. And we have some really great sponsors this year. And we look forward to another year with all you ladies. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for the time.